I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. It's page 803 in our church Bibles. In light of the day and the focus of uh, the persecuted church around the world, we're just going to take a leave from Mark's gospel and return to it all spared and Lord willing next week. But we're going to focus on Romans 12. Our attention will be in the latter verses, although I'm going to read the whole chapter. I lost the kids at Grace. (laughs) Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belong to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us, If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve it, serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, before we pray, I just want to thank Kathy Hansen, who year by year, she keeps a couple of things before us. Um, Operation Christmas Child and the plight of the desperate poor around the world children. And we give them gifts and we try to get the gospel in their hands. And then second, uh, Today, the plight of the persecuted church around the world and and our responsibility to them. So in light of the latter, the day and the evening, we're going to ask God to give us help and to just retune and and maybe give us a fresh uh, understanding of what it means to be persecuted uh, because of Jesus. So let's just keep that in mind. And as you're thinking about the evening prayer service, My only um, recommendation would be, in light of everything, just simply a 
apply the golden rule and I'm sure you'll make a right choice. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, let's pray for God's help. Father, will you please open our hearts to your voice as your word is taught? And please open our lives to be obedient to that voice, that your word would be to us the bread of life. And may you then look upon all of us now in your mercy so that we'll be helped greatly. And the persecuted church will be helped by how you work through us now and in this evening in our prayers. And God, we ask this in order that the Lord Jesus Christ will be known and will be glorified all over the world. For Jesus' sake, Father, amen. Well, if you read your Bible, if you read a good history book, if you read your newspaper, you'll know that there's been individuals, there's been agencies, there's been nations who have tried everything that they can think of to stop the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, despite all of that, because of God's grace, Uh, His gospel mission cannot be stopped. The prince of this fallen world, the evil one who opposes the mission of the gospel and uses uh, horrible acts of human cruelty, unthinkable things. And, And the intent, as you know, is to strike either fear in the hearts of Christians or fear in the hearts of those who are thinking about Jesus Christ. And yet, the evil one's deception is is so wicked that it goes way beyond acts of cruelty, right? He uses prosperity. He uses apathy as well. Yet despite all that, this is what we know, that because of the grace of God, the gospel mission of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. And even the church at times, I was thinking about the video. So if we're actually spreading the gospel, two things we'll know. Either we'll see conversion and or we'll see um, persecution. And I wonder, as I was listening to that, I was thinking about myself, and actually I was thinking about all of you. I wonder in the past few years, have you seen either? Either conversion or persecution because you've been expanding the gospel in the place where God puts you. So sometimes the church miscalculates the value of the mission. We, we try to redefine the mission or simply abandon the mission altogether. But in spite of us, because of the grace of God, the mission of the gospel of Jesus continues. So we have a letter here to the Roman church. It's a young church. Belongs to Jesus. And what Paul is going to do, he's going to help the reader see that, yeah, the gospel mission can't be stopped. And one of the reasons why we know this to be true is in chapter 12, he's going to give us a strategy, a strategy from heaven on how to behave when the gospel persecution Jesus said would come when it has come. In other words, what we're going to do is we're going to find the apostle of Christ guided by the Holy Spirit. He's going to give exact instructions to Christians who either will be or more than likely for the first readers here are being persecuted because they say something like, I don't know, uh, their only hope in life and in death is that they uh, don't belong to themselves but belong body and soul both in life and death to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what's taking them down. Okay? So as you think about that, it's a very cruel world. Is it not to to oppress and to murder people because they say 
Jesus is their only hope in life and in death. But that's the world that we live in. And you know, I know you could say this in every generation, but it still needs to be said that this is a very strange world. I told somebody early Thursday morning, I'm having trouble understanding our world right now. So it's a world which if anyone has something to say, good or bad, they now have a platform to say it. And everybody in the world can either hear it or they can read it. And everybody in the world can give their opinion on it. And as a result of this, some really, really good things can happen. But also some really, really bad things can happen. It's a world which, according to historian Yuval Noah Harari, he said of the 56 million people who died in 2012, more people died of sugar than gunpowder. 620,000 people died by the hands of another human being, acts of war and crime. But 1.5 million people died from diabetes. 60 million children in Asia are orphaned right now. So it's a strange world. But under God, it needs a Christian witness. So how do we live in a world, right? Because that's the question I was asking myself all week. You know, here we are in this place. How do we live in a world where the wind is not to our back anymore? The wind's to our face. How do we live in a world where Jesus said that if we actually like put him forward in our lives, people might hate you? So Paul spent 11 chapters in Romans to give us the fullest and plainest statement of the gospel in the whole of the New Testament, right? He pristinely makes the case that the gospel is by God's grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. But he's not finished. And now, beginning in chapter 12, what he's going to tell us is, is this is the power of the gospel. That the power of the gospel is so life-transforming that it will uh, alter the way you approach and think about everything. So I put it like this, the gospel is God's power to give us conduct worthy of the gospel or if you like verse 1 of chapter 12, the gospel is the power to enable us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So you ask yourself the question, right? What is conduct worthy of the gospel? What does it mean to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? This is, the answer is not like whatever you want it to be. And the answer is not whatever you feel like God is saying to you with your Bible closed shut. Because both can mislead, both have misled. So in chapter 12 is Paul's instruction for conduct worthy of the gospel or for uh, the ability to, to put our lives down as a living sacrifice to God. And Paul is saying this is a rational response then to the gospel. You'll see if your Bible's open, right? He begins his line of thinking in verse 1 with essentially the gospel of Christ is so great that in view of God's mercy, as you've been moved, hard in moved by the mercy of God, as your mind has been actually captured by the fact that, yeah, Jesus really, really did die for you, and yeah, he really, really took all your sins in, your, in his body, and though the wages of sin is death, and we're sinners, we won't have to die a death like Jesus. Jesus died, right? So we will never have to know and feel God's wrath like Jesus did. And we'll never have to know and we'll never have to feel condemnation 
like Jesus had to for our sins and will never know abandonment that Jesus knew for our sins. And now all we can know is love and grace and acceptance. Therefore, in light of that, verse 1, in view of God's mercy, what is the logical, what is the reasonable act of worship? Well, God says through Paul, give your body to Jesus. Conduct worthy of the gospel. We'll do a little sketch here, verses 3 to 8. Paul says, look, you need to have a much more sobering self-image. A much more sobering assessment of yourself before God and before man. A little tongue-in-cheek here. Paul is saying, restrain your understood awesomeness, Christian. Verses 9 to 16, love one another. Okay, how so? Well, in heart, not for show, right? In the church, local, global, express this love in serving one another, accepting one another in love. In love, which means what? Well, it means your service then is not going to depend on, it's not going to be fueled by people's performance, but it's going to be fueled by God's love, right? Jesus said it like this. What credit is it to you if you're good to good people? Easy. What credit is it to you if you evaluate people and say not good and therefore you determine to do less because you have determined on the scales of your own judgment they only deserve a portion of your kindness, a portion of your help, a portion of your love, or worse, none at all. How Paul would say, how could you do that when Jesus died for you? He died for you when you and I did not measure up. Right, Romans 5? And we were the thick of our sin. He goes to the cross. And so Jesus says, okay, so what? I'm going to go to the cross for them. That's the gospel way. So then it begins to make sense to me, beginning in verse 14, and then verses 17 to 21, Paul's going to say, okay, look. This is conduct worthy of the gospel when persecution comes. When people hate you, not because of, <laughs> not because of your personal convictions or, or because you're just being really creepy. But they hate you because of Jesus. So this is for us. But it's also kind of sort of for tonight. Because I'd like this to help fuel our evening prayers when we pray for the persecuted and when we pray for their persecutors. Verse 14, do not curse, but bless your persecutors. You think it's easy for them to do that? I mean, just because they're overseas, we think sometimes they're more pious than us and they don't have to deal with indwelling sin. They need our prayers. Don't repay evil for evil. 17, 19, don't take revenge. 21, don't be overcome by evil. Four points, really straightforward. Bless and do not curse. The word in verse 14, bless, is where we get our word um, eulogy, right? So this is the idea that instead of speaking ill of somebody when they're bad to you, you speak well of them. You eulogize them, right? You know this in funerals. Family and friends come together and they say really nice things about the deceased. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 14. So ask yourself the question, right? Because you would ask, where is God at work? Well, here is God at work when God's people, being gospel people, begin to feel the weight, finally, of gospel allegiance. And in that allegiance, persecution comes and a curse comes and we respond with blessing. 
So we bow low, we serve well, and we speak well about bad people, our persecutors. And when we do that, we're living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in a hostile world. That's the idea there. Bless, do not curse. Secondly, verse 17, repay evil with good. Now, if you're going to be honest, you know by nature the instinct in the human is to pay evil with evil. So kids do this, the tit-for-tat thing, right? Or the adults, we're much more sophisticated. So what we do is we lay out a, a sequence of planned events all coming to that one moment when before all to see, we get even. And we repay evil with our own evil and thus we create twice as much evil. And we make them feel like we felt. And so we say, the account's settled. And even if you don't do that, we probably wish that. And we're no better in the thought than in the deed, according to Jesus. But Paul writes, verse 17, repay evil essentially with what? What's the idea there? It's 1 Peter 3. It's the words of Jesus, repay evil with good. And people have obeyed this gospel way from, for centuries. I, I read a good story this week. Ben Kwashi is the man's name. He is the Anglican Archbishop of Nigeria right now. He's married to Gloria. He has six children. His oldest son is a priest. They, they have 54 orphans living with them in northern Nigeria. 54 and so he tells the story that missionaries came from Cambridge when he was a young boy. And before they ever preached the gospel message, they were all killed. All the missionaries killed before they ever spoke the name of Jesus in a foreign land. Two brothers from the Fox family were part of the group and they died. Their graves still in northern Nigeria. So soon after the parents get word of their boy's death... And as you can imagine, the parents wept. But after they wept, they went to their lawyer. They arranged for a portion of land which they had received as an inheritance to be sold. They brought the money to the missionary organization and their, that their sons served in. And they, this is what they said. As much as we mourn the death of our two dear boys, we can only be consoled if the mission for which our children died for continues. What's that? That's verse 17. That's not repaying evil with evil, but with good. 1 Peter 3, 9, repay evil with blessing. And so as the story goes on, the Archbishop Ben Kwashi, who told the story, he himself was a beneficiary of the ministry of the gospel, which continued as a result of the parents' gift to the church, if you would, in Nigeria. Do not repay evil for evil. You will create twice as much evil. Cut it in half. See your behavior owned by the gospel. So Paul would say, okay, who is a transformed believer? Who is an agent of the gospel? Well, this is a person who shows to the world how Christians react to evil. Because the Christian knows they're called to be like Jesus Christ. So they think and behave like Jesus Christ when evil comes. Verse 9. They have a heart full of genuine love. They're eager, eager to do good at every turn. They honor people. They are zealous, hardworking. They're fervent. They're humble. And rejoice 
So even though the ship of their life is battered because of the gospel and the sails are torn because of the gospel, their anchor holds. The ship is fine. Their inner workings uh, of the gospel life is a kind of steadiness and a joy and hard working and praying and sharing and abiding. And that's their bent. They're good people who do good works for bad people. And they do it, you know, not seasonal, not for theater, not as a hypocrite, not for local applause, but they do it for Jesus. Because Jesus said to, verse 14, bless those who hurt you, who curse you. Verse 17, repay evil not with evil, but with good. Number three, leave vengeance to God. Now, this is verses 19 and 20. This is so good. You see verse 19, right? Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. It's mine to avenge. I'll repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing that, you'll heap burning coals on their head. So we know that this world is filled with injustice, right? Injustice abounds everywhere. But the Christian, when they're thinking these things through, they come up with at least two things they know for sure. Number one, ultimately, the judge of all this world will do right. Justice is coming. But they also know that if we ourselves received what we deserve from God, if we received justice from God, then we would be in hell. Right? We'd be in hell. And if you don't know that and you don't frame your life under that truth, then you're going to be a difficult person to be around as a Christian. So here's why I say verses 19 and 20 is a gospel remedy. Okay, verse 19, don't take revenge. So that's a don't. So as long as you do that, you're good, but you're not done. Verse 20, which is a quote from Proverbs 25. Paul says, okay, don't take revenge, but do something for your enemies. Okay, what do you do for your enemies? Well, what does it say? Essentially, treat them with kindness. And one of the ways we do this is essentially to show up their door with a nice hot meal and a two-liter bottle of, I don't know, Coke. Right? That's essentially verse 20. Right? And I don't want you to think, well, look, if my enemy's not hungry and if my enemy's not thirsty, then you know what? I don't have to do anything. I'm in the clear. That would be a way, way wooden application of the text. That's silly. That's like the person who said, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Clearly, Paul is saying we don't retaliate, but actually we serve those in love who have done us wrong. So think of it this way. If you have been done, if if you've been wronged and you're stewing in that, don't stew. (laughs) Bring them a stew. Bring a nice warm meal and a good drink. Now, you say to yourself, how hard is that? Right? How hard is that? Well, by nature, I don't think we can do it. Think, will you think with me? So you've been wronged. You read verses 19 and 20, and you're like, okay, I'm going to try to obey. So you've got to go to the store, and you've got to shop for ingredients. Are you going to get good ingredients, or are you going to get bad ingredients? Are you going to get those cheap potato chips that when you open them up, they're all like crumbled? Or are you going to actually get ruffles for your enemy, the big fat ones, right? Are you going to get meat for them? Do they deserve meat? And if you're going to get meat, the quality of meat. And so you go home and you begin to cook the thing. And you know, you're trying your best not to drop some of that meat on the floor. And you're going to give them some of your own precious soda, right? And then you have to drive to their house. You've got to knock on the door and you say, I love you. 
In Christ's name, you're going to eulogize them? And here's a nice meal, enemy. (laughs) You see? Verse 19, God's part is to repay. Verse 20, our part is to be generous. You care for them. Now let's think through this. Let's think of this in the context of a third world country where so much persecution takes place. And then I think we'll see the power of the gospel. Ben Kashi. Ben Kashi, you take this bread and you take this meat and you take this drink and you bring it to belly and you tell him we love him and tell him that we forgive him and we want Jesus to save him. But dad, he hurt us bad. He hurt mom bad. And we don't have a lot, dad. Ben Kashi, think like Jesus thinks. Remember your master. Remember we hurt him too in our sin and our disobedience. And Ben Kashi, do you remember what Jesus did? Yes, Father. He took our place on the cross. Good, Ben Kashi, good. Now you go behave like the man on the cross. Go behave like the man on the cross. There's a strong possibility that some of us here have been hurt. And we've kept our distance. But Jesus would say, verse 18, if it's possible, verse 20, go be good to them. But we say, well, that's how we make our statement. That's how we take our stand. We ignore them. Hard to them. Feel that pain. But Jesus says, no. And so maybe the only way that we get comfort for some of us is the end of verse 20, right? Heaping burning coals on their head. And you're like, now you're talking. That's the version of Christianity that I like. Burning heads. So just let them get paid back. Get them, God. That would be wrong as well, right? Loved ones, verse 20a is not there as an incentive for verse 20b. This is here in consequence. So when you read that thing about the heaping burning coals on the head, some scholars say it's reference to an ancient Egyptian practice where symbolically people would um, wear, well, they actually would have hot coals on their head and, and it was symbol, symbolizing that they were sorry and that they were very repentant of what they did. But some say, and most say, it's a metaphor. Now I want you to stay with me because this is what it's trying to say. It's a metaphor for the pain and shame which will be experience of a person who recognizes the wrong they have done and that they really deserve some kind of punishment and they really deserve some kind of retribution. Some... But instead of that, they've been shown kindness by the very person they've wronged. So they've been shown generosity and they've been shown a way that is completely otherworldly and so foundationally supernatural because they've been shown the gospel. Then says the Bible, these people who will be walking in regret and contrition having given coals which will not bring them hurt, that's human, but it will bring them healing. So that they're not drawn away from us, but they're drawn to us by our good deeds. We know by nature, many of us, we just, can they just hurt a little bit? 
Just, just a little bit. Just a little burn. But as soon as we go there, we think that doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't look like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is committed to making Jesus in me. So here's the intent of verses 19 and 20. Either our enemies will be softened by this and a gospel door is open or verse 19, God's wrath will execute a proper judgment at the proper time. So I want you to think with me. Jesus eats with his enemies. Jesus serves his enemies. Jesus feeds his enemies. And if Jesus did not do that, then none of us would be welcome at the communion table this morning. Because we were once his enemies until Jesus in his mercy drew us to himself. So when we move from from that to this, we realize that we have no leg to stand on to remove ourselves from this application because of our standing with God. Or, you know, we think that somehow we can get promoted past this kind of behavior. Our enemies might be able to manage our Christian arguments. Their spirits probably will be strong enough to resist our threats, wrong as that would be. But they may very well collapse as a result of the love Jesus offered them in the most practical ways, right? Love them, treat them in a way that we've been treated by Christ. Bring down the gospel on their head. You mean like burning coals? Yeah, because maybe the burning coals by God's grace could turn into tongues of fire over their head. So you say, well, it's so plain. It doesn't sound very exciting, right? Food, drink, being good and kind to bad people, serving bad people. It's so plain. Yeah, maybe it is plain, but you know, Jesus loves his enemies so much that he wants every Christian to be able to serve them in some way and to send them help. And so just about all of us can cook a meal. Just about all of us can pour a beverage, serve our enemies in a plain way so that the hope of the gospel will be poured out to as many of our enemies as possible. See, the simplicity here is very powerful. And if you're not thinking and if you're not alert, you're going to completely miss it. We're always used to the big and the bold and the stuff. And this is just so simple. And you know, as long as I've been a Christian, this is what I know. Before God wants to pour out his wrath, he'd much rather pour out his mercy. He'd rather convict and convert than to crush. Ezekiel 33, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, Ezekiel says, and a good meal or a good deed could be the very key which starts that whole ball rolling, right? Think, Think this through. The only way to halt evil is to not perpetuate evil. No vengeance. Because the very architect of human evil, one day they might be in human need. And we might be the very ones that God chooses to use to meet that need. So tonight when we pray for our brothers and sisters who've been mistreated, have been persecuted because of Jesus, we ask God to give them strength because they're going to need it. That if their enemies come for their prayers, that they will pray for them. If their enemies come for their food, they'll feed them. If their enemies come for drink, they'll give them drink. Whatever it is. That those who have been hurt by them will be the very instruments that God uses to help them. 
That's the Christian way. Finally, and briefly, verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word there for overcome is, con- is conquered. Don't be conquered by evil, uh, but, but conquer your evil with good. And so this, and again, think with me, this is the call to the most radical Christian response to all the evil in the world, to always consistently seek good for everyone, every race, every face, place, every bent that people have, every gender, all the beliefs at all times, seek out the good. Titus 3.2, show true humility towards all humanity. Now just, just think about all that goodness that could just emanate out of the Christian. Just think of it. I mean, right now our world is kind of like in a really hateful place right now. And it needs a lot of good. Remember Abraham Lincoln, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? So in Jesus Christ, we find one who conquers evil, not with the execution of his rights, but with the demotion of his rights. Do you understand that? Execution of his rights? No, the demotion of my rights. He conquered evil with his goodness. So Jesus says to his people, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. In other words, the father says, I got a great gift for you. Listen, kids, I've arranged a play date for you in the backyard and there's a pack of wolves waiting for you. (laughs) That's what it means. So on the human level, it's not a fair fight, right? But it's our fight. So Paul would say, sober up, Christian. Die to yourself, Christian. Put on the full armor of God, Christian. Get engaged, Christian, and feel your weakness, Christian, in order that Christ's power may rest on you. And so let's just say ourselves or for our brothers and sisters across the sea, if their goodness is rejected and we end up dying, Romans 14, then we're immediately with the Lord. And if we don't die and we're in the thick of the Lord's business, either way, we lose nothing. We lose nothing. John Stott on this, and we'll, we'll close here. He says, to return evil for good is devilish. To return evil for evil is human. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. So you see, this is different. And this is difficult. I'm going to leave here with a limp, to be real honest with you, because all week long I had to struggle with my inadequacy of Romans chapter 12. But if we care, we can start today. We can ask God to change our mind. We can ask God to transform our life. And we can say something like, Jesus, I surrender. Take me, use me any way you choose. Change my mind and make me be able to do good to all, but especially my enemies. So if a person or a persecutor is headed to hell, let's make them fight their way through the valley of our good deeds and our good words, right? A a, a meadow, if you would, and not a minefield. Because by nature, minefields are easy. Supernaturally, 
Meadows is what we're looking for. Think of all the goodness this world needs right now. We better take communion. Let's pray. If you're helping to serve, gentlemen, would you please come forward? Father, would you please do a great work in light of what was said today in all our lives? And if you do that great work, then help us not to be surprised, but engaged. For Jesus' sake.